Oh, no, uh, I, I'm just curious. So there are certain shows that, like, they're best left in the past. Like, you don't want to go back. Like, I think of the book Ear again. Like, mm-hmm. I loved it as a kid, but I intentionally do not go back and reread it because I know I would reread it and be like, oh, my gosh, this is this is not wait, great writing. Wait, which book? Aragon? Aragon. I mean, Aragon? What is wrong with you? Aragon. No. Aragon. No, it's Aragon. No, it's definitely it's, Aragon. It's definitely not. We're going to have to disagree, agree to disagree on this one. No. Um, Christopher Pauline pronounces Aragon. You like, are literally uh, just wrong. It, are you sure? Yes. Yeah. Are you positive? Yes. Okay, yes. Aragon. Whatever. Um... Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sam. And we are back with another series. Finally, it is about time. Uh, We have a new book, which Sam will be introducing here in a moment. But before we introduce this new book, uh, Stephen, what are you drinking right now? I am drinking some of the finest bourbon available. Uh, Evan Williams, Black Label. It's uh, it's a classic. And, uh, you know, just given that we need to, to celebrate our, our more recent uh, uh, time together with uh, some, of the, some of the creation of memories, this seemed like a good way to do it. Well played. Creation and, and removal of memories. That that too. That that did happen. Listen, there, there is a healthy dialectic in the creation and removal of memories uh, that only Evan Williams, Black Label can provide. Uh, Sam, what are you, you drinking? Create, you create, you remove, you regret. Um, I am also drinking Evan Williams Black Label. Good stuff. Cheers, Sam. Cheers. And while I am not drinking Evan Williams Black Label, I have incorporated Evan Williams Black Label into my Manhattan that I am drinking. Walker Percy would be proud of us. So, close enough. <laughs> they really need to sponsor us one of these days. Like they, Yeah. We've done so much free content for them. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah, it, when I was trying to prove to you that the bottles have different designs, I downloaded like eight different pictures, but like couldn't quite find the right pairing of them that I wanted to send you. So now I my phone just looks like an alcoholic's phone. I guess. It's like <laughs> Is that what alcoholic's phones look like? Just pictures of bottles like yes. in the photos. Yes. Yeah. On on nights when you have to stay sober to go to the AA meeting, you just have that on your phone and surreptitiously look at it every couple minutes. Um like you just look at the bottle like bottle porn. That's yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's 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 not like the bottle. Like it's not as good as the bottle it, it, itself, but it is the idea of the bottle. And as we know, or as we soon will know, ideas have consequences, which is the name of our next book. Sam, do you want to give us a little intro into this book, where it comes from, why why we're doing it? That may have been your best segue of all time. Yeah, this book is uh, Ideas Have Consequences, which was published in 1948 um, by Richard Weaver. Uh, Richard Weaver is i mean he's a philosopher cultural critic uh figure from the mid 1900s he mostly wrote about nostalgia for the old south uh very focused on chivalry tradition anti-consumerism um and later in his career a little bit later in his career he wrote um ideas have consequences which is a huge hit and still widely read today and is considered one of the founding books of our modern conservative movement uh, ideas have consequences. Mainly goes after nominalism and looks at how that has played out in the modern world. And it appears to be one of the earlier works to do that. Uh, Brevin was telling me it was pulling from he's pulling from a lot of other authors who have done this analysis before. But this was one of the big books that made that that view of nominalism being bad popular. Um, so he, he talks about nominalism, talks about the decline of truth, and um, ultimately concludes that 
we need to establish a basis of authority. We need to uh, reinvest in our right of private property, and we need to re-understand the meaning behind language because as he sees what's going on right now, he's that language is being used and discarded um, in very negative ways. So that's the overall book. We're, I think that most of us have read before, at least Bre- I've read parts of it. I think Brevin's read all of it. Stephen has not touched it. I've not, so, no. It's a great, it's it's a really great book. It's a good book to understand um, where a lot of the philosophical ideas that make up the right uh, came from. Um, also, interestingly, is um, this was before fusionism. So it was before uh, conservatism was associated with uh, free markets and corporatism. And so he's very critical of corporations in this book, uh, which is interesting to hear that kind of from an unfiltered view. So very good. We're excited to read it. We did the first three chapters for this episode. Well, truth be told, I mean, we could be doing a single episode on every single chapter. I think. I mean, this is some this is some excellent yes. stuff. But we're yeah. trying. To, we are trying to spare you. Uh, if if we do end up getting bogged down in this episode, as we very well might, perhaps we will extend. We can see. Um, Stephen, just to confirm, though, because uh, I think one of us was skimming ahead further than others, um, but the. Quote about peasants uh, learning to read, or rather, like everyone learning to read hath ruining hath ruineth thought for all. Uh, quoting Nietzsche, but that's that's in here, correct? That it yes, is. it is. All right, I do believe. I mean, the phrase, the problem with reading, and and the, and the central meme of the peasants having learned mm-hmm. learned to read being a mistake is overdetermined. Like the truth just comes at us from all sorts of different directions. So, you know, it, it comes from everywhere and nowhere. It's like GK Chesterton's defense of civilization. You're like, why shouldn't the peasants have learned how to read? And you just sort of gesticulate because it's, it's everything why the peasant shouldn't have learned how to read. Um, but this book, I do believe, which I read several years before starting this podcast, I think there are a lot of ideas that I'll come across as I reread it now. Uh, that just has sort of been germinating in in my subconscious in this book, mm-hmm. and they had consequences. And they had consequences. <laughs> oh, I'll beat that my own game. <laughs> All right. Well, let's just let's just jump right into it. Uh, so I will be summarizing chapter one, but before then, I do just want to note that this book very much fits into the theme of the show. Not only because it was likely in part the origin to it of 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 this uh, podcast but also because the opening line of the introduction is this is another book about the dissolution of the west end quote and that's pretty much all of the books that we read on this podcast that's probably all the books that we will continue to read one way or another uh and uh this book is a great addition to that if as i think we're starting to discover different from a lot of the ones that we've read both in its style and and substance and it'll be interesting to sort of tease this out against other things that we've read like mcintyre like mcgilchrist to see how it matches up where there are commonalities and agreements and where the uh the the authors that we've read uh sharply diverge uh so first is chapter one uh, which is the unsentimental sentiment and he goes into a discussion of culture as the bedrock for what allows a society to exist. He says that there are three levels of participation in culture that men can have. Specific ideas about things, general beliefs and convictions about things, and a metaphysical dream of the world. Some sort of subconscious, tacit, unexpressed idea of what the world is. And it is ultimately to the dream that the first two levels refer Convictions are always backed up eventually in the dream. McIntyre could tell us as much. Philosophy 
he says, begins with wonder because reason fails to justify itself on its own terms. It always returns to this dream. Now, that's not to say that philosophy doesn't have a place. It draws us forward. It helps us systematize the dream. It helps manifest it in reality and push us forward. It helps create a mythology of the dream to help push us towards our final destinations, towards our ideals. But the danger that he sees, that he starts to get at in the first chapter, is that ideas in the society that he's living in in 1948 have become convenient perceptions. They're, they, they have been allowed to become contradictory because they don't need to refer back to this unifying dream, to any sort of central reality. They can go off in their various directions because they're not anchored in anything back at the end. They're no longer truths, they are facts. And he sees that agreement on a unifying dream is essential for the survival of a society. And he talks about how the scholastic in medieval times argued how many angels dance on the head of a pin because it matters to unity. It helps confirm what the unifying dream is. It's, it actually is an important question in as much as it allows everyone to exist in the same dream in the same universe and work forward from there. He further says that men of culture approach norms with a deep respect for the forms of them, that they see deep thought in old remembrance, in tradition. He says that the idea of the American character, which he's quite critical of in many ways, throws off these forms. It's the frontiersman that throws off unnecessary culture, unnecessary manners, you know, in favor of getting things done, lives on his own, uh, survival on, on the frontier. But of course, you know, he says, is Europe any better off? And eh, not really. They're just a step or two behind or they've decayed in in different ways. America's just a little bit more quick and a little bit more explicit about its uh, throwing off of culture. He says further that culture is related to self-control, to non-immediacy, to the victory of the transcendence through delaying things that are directly in front of us. Uh, I would point here just very briefly to Patrick Deneen's essay on the fork and how our manners are ways of delaying the gratification of food, uh, such as cutting uh, uh, food with the knife in one hand and then switching it back over to use your fork is a way of denying animalistic urges. It's a way of making us one step removed from our worst selves. So he sees it in much the same way. So he says that when culture is then torn down for for immediacy's sake, you know, for the sake of getting something done uh, or by the urgency of self-expression, it's difficult for the man of culture to object because it's hard to convey across the gap that someone who is utilitarian about these things and someone who sees who, who is trying to manifest the dream in reality, you can't convey the idea of sacrilege, that there's something important that's being lost in tearing down the veil and unveiling a stark reality. Because what the veiling does, what the function of a veil is to allow ideas to enter into the material world. It's a way of manifesting the dream in the seemingly mechanistic world or a mechanistic world when we allow ourselves to see it that way. Uh, he quotes Burke saying that, uh, he quotes Burke uh, saying that Burke foretold the results of such a positivism when it was first unleashed by the French Revolution. Now quoting Burke, quote, all the pleasing illusions which made power gentle and obedience liberal, which harmonized the different shades of life and which by a bland assimilation in incorporated into politics, the sentiments which beautify and soften private society are to be dissolved by this new conquering empire of light and reason. All the decent drapery of life is to be rudely torn off. All the superadded ideas furnished from the wardrobe of a moral imagination which the heart owns and the understanding ratifies as necessary to cover the defects of our naked shivering nature and raise it to a dignity in our own estimation are to be exploded as a ridiculous, absurd, and antiquated fashion, end quote. And he says uh, further, 
quote, barbarism and philistinism cannot see that knowledge of, of material reality is a knowledge of death, end quote. Perhaps here we can add some commentary about the left hemisphere and machines which have no breath of life in them. He says that the removal of sentiment kills ideas like obscenity. It lets all the pain and human suffering in the world be displayed for all, for our consumption, as opposed to something that should be hidden and respected because of it. See here, perhaps, amusing ourselves to death, perhaps propaganda. Cities as well, and commerce, also damage our ability to maintain our sentiments, our proper sentiments, and to have a metaphysical community, as he, as he terms it. Finally, as he closes out chapter one, he speaks of war and the war that the world has just gone through. Uh, war that is total, that is democratic, and fanatical. He says, quote, the only redemption lies in restraint imposed by an idea, but our ideas must be harmonized by some vision. Our task is much like finding the relationship between faith and reason in an age that does not know the meaning of faith, end quote. And he just summarized secular age in a single sentence. So all that to say, this book has many threads that go off in many directions. And I believe who has chapter two? Sam will take us now, on our first steps on that road. So I was under the impression that we were attempting to shorten our summaries and we are going for highlights so that's why i'm bringing you our highlights from chapter two and to be fair i was short relative to, to anything that steven has ever done but i apologize this if is i overemphasized brevity no no forgive me for being thorough i'm just feeling insufficient so chapter two is distinction and hierarchy in this chapter weaver digs a bit more into uh what is breaking down in our society and that specifically is Hierarchy. In the first couple of pages, he establishes, as I would summarize his argument, that society is synonymous with hierarchy. The only things that exist without hierarchy are animals. And even this, I would say, even animals have quite a degree of hierarchy. So to exist without hierarchy is almost, it's impossible. He also, he does caveat this by saying that this hierarchy must be guided by virtue, um, giving a distinction about what kind of knowledge to gather. You can't guide a hierarchy just based off of knowledge. You have to have virtue to order that knowledge. Very, very uh, Thomistic of him. Uh, he then takes a nice dig at socialism, which is fun. Uh, he says that it's basically, it's been developed almost entirely by the middle class. And the reason that the middle class loves socialism is because they're entirely isolated uh, by two other classes, the lower class and the upper class. And those are the two classes that will be negatively affected by socialism. Um, basically a, a skewed version of hierarchy. He's arguing that hierarchy in a modern society does not diminish, that we're not really removing the hierarchy that we intend to remove. Instead, it just becomes bureaucracy, uh, which is, as we all know, hellish. He, on page 40, he talks a bit about resentment and how that is the ultimate thing that will destroy our Western civilization, that it's not even the lack of hierarchy, but it's the fact that we resent each other, which makes me think significantly of Arthur Brooks, who I'm certain that we've brought up at one point or another on this podcast before. Um, and that really... The equality that people want is only possible under a despot. The most equal, equal situation ever was in the Middle Ages when everybody was working for Lord. Very equal, and it was miserable. He makes this argument on page 42 that democracy may not even be the most comprehensible thing. Um, and he talks about how a random election might even be fairer. This I thought was interesting. Um, there was actually there were actually some studies done. Now, granted, these studies were by with, with Brazilian uh, high school students, so very, very different situation, that actually schools seem to prefer a random election of their um, student body leadership over a, an election. 
they tried it in multiple schools and all of them thought it was far fairer um, in the end and the government was far more successful. So it really does both here, right, him right here and these modern studies do put, put doubt into whether really putting everybody on an equal playing field to vote equally is actually leading to a fair and satisfying conclusion. He does say that the Federalists noted this on page 43, which I appreciated. Um, the uh, writing in the Federalist, uh, James Madison talks about how there is a fallacy of the majority rule and how we can't be looking for majority rule, but rather the protection of the minority through checks and balances. So Weaver doesn't necessarily appear to be anti-democratic, but rather he's arguing that democracy requires something. And again, the solution at the end of his chapter is that it requires some source of authority. And that authority cannot just be grounded in knowledge, but it has to be grounded in a true and meaningful hierarchy. Stephen. All right. Uh, <laughs> chapter three, Fragmentation and Obsession. So I would like to title this chapter, The Master and His Emissary Revisited, although even just kind of listening to you two talk, it, there's just so much, oh, sounds like left hemisphere. Oh, sounds like right hemisphere. Um, but this chapter in particular is highly focused on the fact that our society has become fragmented in our intellectual pursuits. Weaver's main project in this chapter is to trace the decline of the intellectual man from philosophic doctor to gentleman to expert. He begins by noting that the medieval scholastic was first and foremost a philosopher and theologian. Quote, this is why, for example, the faculty of theology at Sorbonne could be appealed to on matters of financial operation, which in our era of fragmentation would be regarded as exclusively the province of the banker, end quote. Philosophy was the queen of the studies, and this was not due to it being some era of superstition, though superstition certainly existed, but rather had to do with the viewing of the world as an integrated whole, with theology and philosophy being the grand study of the integration of things, the field that brings all disparate areas of study together into a cohesive whole. Note that synthesis, bringing together, is the domain of the right hemisphere. Uh, modernity challenged the philosopher-theologian into, or sorry, not challenged, modernity changed the philosopher-theologian into the gentleman, which is a secularized version of the role. The gentleman provided a secular simulacra of the philosopher-theologian, which rulers of any group must have, and being someone who, uh, that, that being someone who can, uh, who can integrate all fields. All rulers and serious thinkers were dabblers in the humanities and the liberal arts. The gentleman was an idealist, though, quote, his idealism lacked the deepest foundations, end quote. The gentleman was, quote, a man of sentiment who refused to put matters on a basis of materialism and self-aggrandizement, quote, or end quote. Alas, quote, in one thing he was deficient. He had lost sight of the spiritual origin of self-discipline, end quote. That said, Weaver acknowledges that the gentleman was at least in part uh, fulfilled, sorry, that the gentleman at least in part fulfilled the role of the philosophic doctor, serving as, quote, an exemplar to a humanist secularized society as the other did to a religious, end quote. This was an important role and served as a bulwark for society, a standard that humanity could hold to. It was a group interested in the whole of things, not a group obsessed with particulars. Again, something, something, left time is your right hemisphere. It's important to acknowledge that, quote, gentlemen did not always live up to their ideal. But the existence of an ideal is a matter of supreme importance, end quote, which, as an aside, I think is increasingly important to point out the that the hypocrisy of those proclaiming an ideal does not invalidate the ideal itself, as so many modern stories seem to believe. Um, similar to the philosophic doctor, the gentleman has a suspicion of specialization. 
Quote, it is an ancient belief, going back to classical antiquity, that specialization of any kind is illiberal in a free man. A man willing to bury himself in the details of some small endeavor has been considered lost to these larger considerations which must, ocup must occupy the mind of the ruler, end quote. Note here that this implies that science is not the domain of the gentleman, as it demands increasing minuteness and makes an ideal of specialization. Here I see Weaver somewhat glaring at me. Uh, such minute detail becomes impossible to integrate. Though I would actually, be, and maybe we can talk about this later, but I would actually be fairly quick to point out that a lot of the old school mathematicians, such as Riemann, Euler, and Gauss, uh, they were specialized specialized in all sorts of fields from physics to math to even humanities. I mean, like, I think one of them, I think Riemann was like a Sunday school teacher. Um, so this wasn't necessarily accurate for a lot of the old school mathematicians, but indeed, increasingly, that is the, the, the state of things. Um, in any case, alas, this synthesis-oriented class was not to last. Increasingly, the student abandons philosophy and pursues science, which is viewed as giving mastery over nature and therefore power. Left hemisphere. The truth of the philosopher is replaced with the fact scientist. And in a manner fitting with Postman's amusing ourselves to death, Weaver eviscerates the current obsession with trivia, or facts. The truth of the philosopher is replaced with the fact of the scientist, and in a matter fitting with Postman's amusing ourselves to death, Weaver eviscerates the current obsession with trivia, with out-of-context facts that have no fitting into a, some sort of coherent whole, but which society venerates as valuable for seemingly no, re no reason. Uh, think, for example, of the crossword puzzle or something like that, where it's all these things that you just kind of have floating around in your head and need to have some use of, and it gives you some sort of social clout or some sort of feeling that these are important and useful, even though they're all disparate. Oh, Weaver goes even further to point out that specialization is adjacent to the mental illness of obsession. Quote, people rightly suspect that expertise conceals some abnormality of viewpoint, end quote, and quote, thus the specialist stands ever at the borderline of psychosis, end quote. He views specialists as lopsided, as having overemphasized a particular for the whole. He contrasts this with the gentleman of the 1800s, or perhaps not even the gentleman, but a Vermont farmer of the 1850s, quote, certainly not one to give himself airs, yet a vessel of some responsibility and, to that extent, an aristocrat by calling, end quote. He describes him as inhabiting a cohesive worldview of taking part in his community, in his work which fits in with said community, and of the various holidays important to it, and moreover, understanding how they fit into the community. Um, here, I think lamentably of our Labor Day or of our Memorial Day, which cognitively we may know has to do with workers' rights or veterans, but I, at least I can only speak for myself, but that's a cognitive, not a any sort of sentiment uh, that, that I have towards those uh, national holy days, as it were. Um, you're, you're a very bad socialist, Stephen. Mm, alas, uh, I'm sure they'll string me up in the gulags eventually. Uh, Weaver laments that division of labor has come to undo with this fittedness of the 1850s uh, farmer gentleman. Uh, taking the atomic bomb project in World War II as a perfect example of people not understanding what they were working on and even bragging about their ignorance in working on something that they knew was important, but not knowing why due to secrecy. He points out that many of these people would have likely objected to the incineration of thousands, but they used division of labor to emasculate their moral senses. Um, even if this is an extreme case, it should be noted that this sort of fragmentation of labor leads to carelessness, to a lack of responsibility. And here I think of many coders who work for Facebook, Google, Twitter, at all, who may cognitively disagree with the effects these com companies have ostensibly had on humanity, but continue to do so because their work is so abstract. Um, this disconnectedness removes the vision of the good life and what it demands. In so doing, the modern man, quote, has allowed himself to be maneuvered into a position in which he is not permitted to be a whole man. There is every indication that he retains some, the same capacity for loyalty, 
but what has he to be loyal to, end quote. Weaver closes by wryly noting that science and its metaphysical handmaiden of progress have exalted becoming over being, a cynical view of the past, a disconnectedness with tradition in place, and an opposition to timelessness. The modernist stands as a fragment of both time and space. Those believing in the transcendental may find themselves thinking of the specialist as, quote, a man possessed by an evil spirit, end quote. But they may also find themselves admiring the gentleman for his internal aplomb. And in, and in inquiring what makes the gentleman act this way, may indeed find themselves pointing more and more towards the philosophic doctor. It is to this project Weaver now turns to in chapter four. I'm impressed. Well done, Stephen. Thank you. Hopefully not too long this time. I'm, I'm working no, on it. That was only oh. only two pages of summary. Nice. I think, yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, it seemed about similar to my time. So yeah, I, I, I can't make any untoward statements. Uh, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. In Indeed. Uh, so did anyone have a place that they wanted to go immediately off of uh, yeah. these? Because I have a couple things. But so, yeah, Sam, take it away. I mean, one one thing is, I mean, this is like a tiny note that might just invoke the biggest of conversations. And it might have just been because I was reading this as I was like in the middle of doing chores for an evening. But on page 57, when he's talking about specialization and how we've just like so over-specialized and um, completely lost all viewpoints and we're all experts and that's a bad thing. You know what really prevents specialization is marriage. I mean, think about it. Like it, it and Brevin, you might be able to confirm, like, confirm this. Like you, you kind of, it, it's really, I, I'm not complaining when I say this. It's, it's wonderful because you have to fit into so many different roles and all of them are good roles. But I, I, I'm, I'm forced out of my desire to just work, to be a working um, employee which is what I think I viewed myself as in the past, is I work, I rest to get ready to work again. And you can't do that. And I mean, that, that's, that's as a, you know, almost two month married man speaking. So maybe I don't know anything on the subject, but I, 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 it, was, it was on my mind. So I wrote it in the margin of my book. I think that's a great observation. I mean, one of the core, I mean, one side truth in that is just that human relationship, genuine human relationship helps establish a larger view of, the world and prevents over specialization as well. I mean, we could say the same thing of the Dominicans who we spent the the mm-hmm. um, weekend with too. They are called to a communal undertaking that prevents them from over specializing. Even if they want to read Thomas Aquinas all day, every day, they can't because it's time for prayers and you're going to go pray with everyone and you're going to eat with everyone and you're going to participate in the community in that way. Um, and I'm sure and you're going to go and you're going to go drink with the retreats um, mm-hmm. and you're going to have the, the retreats. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And even more so kids, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what the, the the Catholic Church recognizes, you know, a religious celibate life and uh, a married one. And I mean, there are some gray zones, but primarily, like, you should get married or you should join a religious order. Like, you're not supposed to do a whole lot in between. Like I said, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, you should do one of those two things. And I think a large part of that is it gets you into the rhythms of, of life, children especially, um, in theory. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an excellent observation. Mm. The Orthodox have a very similar um, concept of marriage or monasticism, and primarily because you shouldn't be on your own. You shouldn't, like, your your life should have a context of someone else uh, or some other person's. Um, and I, I like the idea of it making you not specialize in just one thing. Um, I think I think that's a very apt uh, way of interpreting that. Um, and it, even though I, I, I think of the lamentable story, uh, my advisor knew a gentleman who unfortunately ended up getting a divorce because 
he was a specialist. That's all he could talk about was his work. And he would constantly show up late to dinner with a colleague that he didn't tell his wife about was coming to visit because they were caught up on a project and that's all he could really think about. And that that sort of thing is kind of the, the tragic end of, I mean, from what I understand, that's a, not a typical, uh, or that is a, a fairly common or not uncommon way of uh, kind of academic marriages ending is the, the academic just can't turn it off. They can't stop specializing. And I think marriage is supposed to provide a counterbalance to that. Yep. Yep. Um, and he, I don't think he speaks directly to marriage in, in this. I mean, right before that, he talks about the over, um, like, the men, like the rise of mental illness, which I think you can make a pretty clear connection with, I, I guess, based on those two arguments, I think you can make a pretty clear connection to him speaking to the decline of marriage which is good. Yeah. I mean, the client's terrible. His point's good. So let's go briefly into sort of building off of this. Uh, he has a quote, quote, the modern nowhere may be compared to an inebriate who, ha- who, as he senses his loss of balance, endeavors to save himself by fixing tenaciously upon certain details and thus affords the familiar exhibition of positiveness and arbitrariness. When the world around him begins to heave, he grasps at something that will come within a limited perception. So the scientist, having lost hold upon organic reality, clings the more firmly to his discovered facts, hoping that salvation lies in what can be objectively verified, end quote. You know what this brings to mind is Walker Percy's method of reentry and within the imminent world or imminent frame. Uh, science is one of his, his options that he brings forth, mm. um, that the scientist is trying to find some sort of way of breaking out of the sphere of imminence into some transcendent reality by discovering a fact. The problem is whatever he discovers, it always, or she, uh, will always come crashing back down into this imminent frame. It, 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 transcendence never lasts. Uh, imminence always does. And so the scientist is kind of doomed to that, but is still kind of clinging, desperately trying to find those facts as the inebriate is trying to grasp at the the shelf or the table. Yeah, it's not fixing the um the the fundamental problem. But the the part that makes me think of this is just being in graduate school in economics classes. And, you know, there's all sorts of history of economic thought and, and, and stuff. But you know, so much of the last 50, 70 years of economics is like, here is our, here is our model. Oh, damn it. Why isn't real world lining up to the model? Hold on. What if we tried to force reality? Oh, no. Okay. That did. Oh, oh, we broke the country. Shit. Okay. All right. Let's try and be slightly more nuanced. Okay. It's still not lining up. Let's, let's break the country. Oh, okay. Well, there goes another. All right. Let's try again. And just that over and over and over again. And the substitution left hemisphere oriented, obviously the, the substitution of abstract, very specific knowledge for which they are lauded over and receive, you know, Nobel prizes in economics for their minute knowledge of very specific things and, and attempting to force that into reality that will never accept that level of preciseness and fakeness. I mean, and, and this is of, you know, that's probably the worst of the worst. I mean, you could talk about the classification of animals and how problematic, uh, for lack of a better word, that is, I, I, I know you hate the word, Stephen, and how the bad pro- word. It, it, it is a bad word. It is. How, how ultimately inaccurate it is in capturing the, it, something, something, the order that it imposes is wrong in certain key aspects. But anyway, the point is, but creating these infinite systems of, of knowledge that try and get more and more specific in a way or in an attempt to avoid the fact uh, that they don't understand the, the first things. There, there is a fun little cutesy saying that uh, mathematician physicists have is that all models are wrong. Some are at, no, all models are wrong. Some are useful. And I, I kind of like that as almost kind of keeping humble in that, yes, we have discovered an equation that 
has grasped that reality. Wait, no, this equation doesn't grasp reality. It just kind of helps us understand it a little bit more. Yep. Which is the proper orientation of knowledge. I mean, Weaver's not opposed to knowledge. And I mean, he wasn't necessarily a social scientist, but I don't think he would be opposed to certain social scientists. And indeed, a lot of social scientists love his work. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that proper orientation of it is, okay, this knowledge is is assisting me in getting at something true. And I'm trying to get at the truth. I'm not trying to get at the knowledge. I'm not trying to make my model perfect. I just need it to point me in the direction of what is true. So what you're saying, Sam, is that unlike McIntyre, we're not going to get an entire chapter uh, special or devoted to styling on sociologists. And I wouldn't be, I I hope we do, but I don't think it doesn't exist yet. That's 1948. Fair point. Happier times. Right, right, right. Okay. So part of the thing that I think we can pull from this is that, Yes, knowledge can be developed along the various pathways of it, but his whole dialogue about the theologian philosopher as the center of knowledge is to reinforce the idea that no matter how far or how interesting you get on one of your specialized paths of knowledge, the periphery can never overwhelm the core, that the core always has to stay and and always has to stay uh, as the principal pillar and everything extends from that, never the other way around. And I think there lies in, we were talking about this last weekend, there in, in lies sort of the best kernel of an idea for the liberal arts education, right? Is this kind of knowledge is, you know, since we can't be ruled by priests, I guess we can be ruled by gentlemen. Uh, and that's the one project of the liberal arts education of the university, ostensibly, um, that that's the goal to create this person who is not really an expert in, 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 anything, in anything, competent at several things, and relatively humble in his application of any more specified knowledge that comes to him. Something like that. Which I, I like his, uh, he has this analogy of, or this kind of vignette of, imagine walking through, uh, you know, a, a, a psychiatric ward. And he said, he says that like, most of the patients are actually showing um, hyperactivity in one particular brain function or what have you. And kind of, uh, goes on a brief theoretical venture down. What if you were able to kind of take each aspect of each personality within that within that madhouse? You would have a Superman um, that, that has like mm-hmm. has assembled all of these spe- over specializations, and he kind of says that's that's what the specialist is, like kind of a madman. Um, especially if that's he what a corporation understand. is. I think is yeah. what he does. He use the word corporation. Oh no. Um, but I mean, I, I buy that in that he would say something to the effect of like corporations and their over-specialization are mad. Yeah, and and corporations or large scientific enterprises, for that matter, too. You didn't touch on the example of of the nuclear yeah. weapon. Which no, we I, are, I didn't bring that up. Oh, sorry. Well, not in not in detail. I I, oh, I okay. suppose. And and yeah, and he hates the Manhattan Project. And the idea of yes, he, he does. He does not like it. Yeah. And the core idea of, as will be touched on by other people, I think. I think Polanya touches on this actually, of technical arrogance, never asking, "Should we do this?" Only can oh, yeah. we. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and and all this ties into. I mean, you can see implicit in his critique of war, of total war, of the democratization of war, that it is all against all. This horrible reality that modern war and, in a way equality as a concept too, right? If all are equal, all are equal targets. And strategic bombing, the nuclear weapon, this th- this hellish world uh, that he sees has been created all running downstream of these ideas. It is something convicting to read as a uh, aspiring scientist who uh, is 
I, I'd like to think that I am aware of the limitations of science, but there is still, it, I mean, scientists are the new priest class. Uh, they are the new gentleman. They are the new philosopher, uh, philosopher doctor. If in any sort of conversation, I mean, especially in the current milieu of, I believe in science and, and whatnot, I mean, you're using that as whole, like a holy word. Uh, the scientists, like the scientists told me, that's the, the priest told me. Of course, not to disclaim the amazing achievements of science. We have penicillin because of science. We have planes because of science. We have penicillin because of an accident. Okay, well, whatever. We have modern <laughs> medical technology because of science. Get out of here, Sam, with your pedantry, uh, with your with your specialized wordplay. <laughs> with your specialized wordplay, digging into the uh, something, some rhetoric, something, something rhetoric, like atmosphere, and rhetoric. Rhetoric is a core skill of the gentleman scholar, uh, but the uh, the thing that we can imagine and look forward to in the future, should science continue its unabated uh, charge forward, is you know people going around with faux crucifixes of a beaker and a protractor. Um, so no, that that's brave new world. Uh, they they remove the uh, the top part of the cross and make a T for the model T. And so when the when the arch songster, the Archbishop of Canterbury crosses the parishioners he crosses them with the t and says may for may the ford bless you or may ford bless you that's in that's wait, hilarious that's, that's a great world it's been too long since i've read that i have no memory of that whatsoever oh yeah no the the religion is around industry that makes um, it very and campy to quasi, be and less intelligent are you kidding no i love that it's it, no but it very much captures especially since back then i mean science wasn't as culty as it, it was now, but industry was. That is an amazing criticism of uh, kind of the, the modern obsession. And they even get into how they intentionally replaced religion with its idea of the transcendent with industry, with its it, its imminent idea. Maybe not in I those mean, words, but they have a whole commentary on that. We'll always worship something and we'll always have liturgies and religion. It's only a question of what it's centered around and what you're worshiping. Absolutely. David Foster Wallace, what a guy. That he said that, not not that I'm worshiping him for the record. Uh, hopes. Yeah. Um, uh, there are several other things that I would just note. Uh, he thinks cities are bad. Yeah. He says we are, you know, inhabiting a world of facts in, instead of truth. You know, see C.S. Lewis, Abolition of Man, G.K. Chesterton, Orthodoxy, uh, Jack Salul, Propaganda, all have things to say about that. I'm sure we'll get into that in the future. Wait, Any other... so normally I wouldn't be this pedantic. But you guys did just eviscerate me over my pronunciation of arrogant. Can you pronounce Alul's first name again? Jax? Jacques? Jacques? Jacques Alul? See, see, no, no, I want you to say it again. Yeah, no, see, here's the thing. You assume I did that by mistake, but he's a Frenchman, and I hold no respect for Frenchmen. So, all right, so are there any other final topics that people want to bring up? Uh, here, Stephen is 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 opening and closing his mouth in silent, impotent rage, and it makes me very happy. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not thrilled right now. I'm not happy, Bob. <laughs> not happy. There we go. Uh, any any um, final things on this? Well, one thing I actually was surprised, and this will be short. I don't think there's much conversation to be had behind this, but um, one of the things I was actually kind of surprised. Uh, he says Europe is a step or two behind America in kind of its disillusion. Um. I don't know. Fast forward 50, 60 years, it seems that America is actually like 10 years and, and tracking pretty accurately, like 10 years behind Europe. I'm really surprised that whatever the situation was clearly changed. He thought Europe was behind America. And no, it's, it's the other way around. At least now it is. Um, so I'm surprised he had that analysis. 
I yeah. Uh, so I suppose one thing we would have to do. Uh, so you 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 may be right that you're you're correct that that is rhetoric, something like that 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 is often said. I suppose we, we would have to isolate which specific variables he's saying they're talking about. My understanding was he's talking about sort of the dissolution of culture and proper authority. I don't uh, know enough about Europe to know that. I think traditional sources of authority probably. You are correct in that. The I U.S. Mean, massive within. mistrust of government. Their churches are emptying by the dozens. Yeah. I mean, like any sort of traditional source of authority is pretty much gone in, in Europe, from what I understand. No, no. Other no, than I, a few very conservative countries that are kind of doing the exact equal opposite. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I think that you're potentially correct. Um, I think maybe he couldn't an- anticipate American revival and European secularization, and furthermore, the effects of the Great War wiping out. A lot of that, perhaps, or not the Great War, but, but World War Two, rather. Uh, Wait, is, this is written post World War Two. Yes, but the effects hadn't been seen yet. Oh, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, but but no, you're you're correct. It is interesting, and I don't know how or precisely why that happened, but it did. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, not much, not a ton of commentary to be made, other than just it surprised me. Great. Anything else, Sam? No. Fabulous. Uh, so our uh, article for this second section is uh we won't spend a whole lot of time on it uh because we've spent long enough talking about this um these three chapters you basically gotten three article summaries in one episode already but it's just uh it is now september 16th uh five days past 9 11 the 20th anniversary of september 11th 2001 uh we'll post the article in the episode description i i, I believe the title of the article is uh we are the only plane in the sky and it's an oral history of Air Force One and where the president was um, on that day, where, where, where George Bush was. Uh, and from the view of his staff members, from pilots, from um, officers and, and, and staff members of the various bases and places that they saw, media. media figures on the plane, mm-hmm. and just their perceptions of that day as it was happening and, and as information trickled in and as it became clear. Um, and I read it last year and I read it again this year. And I'm sure, you know, there's all sorts of critiques that one can talk about on 9-11, legacy of empire, uh, quote unquote, forever wars, all this stuff. But that one article, I do think, is very moving. Um, and there are many other moving ones. Sam posted one as well, f- focusing on a, a uh, what was it, Sam? A restaurant manager? It was, so the article I posted, we can link it in the notes too, because it's, I mean, yeah, you and my wife have to talk about this. Read away with all the time that you gain back from us not talking about articles. But um, it's... There was an article in The Atlantic, and it was interviewing the general manager of the restaurant that was on the 97th floor of the North Tower. I think it was 97th floor. No, no, it was the top floor of the North Tower, and he lost 97 employees that day. And like just interviewing him and how he processed that and how it related to his life story and all this stuff. It's a really good article. Um, uh, very, like, very, very personal, but really good. Um, Brevin, I will add that the article that you posted, which I, I read it also I think a couple of years ago, and again this year, it's very, very good. But it's actually an excerpt from a 400-page book that goes through just 9/11 in a similar fashion of like of oral history. So if yeah. if you're interested, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, oral histories are such a good genre. I really enjoy them. They're I'm not sure. There's there's probably something to be said about them being very human and like capturing. Uh, embodied reality from a whole bunch of aspects like you know little um not lenses but surfaces of a crystal or something that uh mm-hmm. obviously you know they can be manipulated or whatever but um it's a different kind of reading and 
hearing a situation than a straight up account or an authoritative narrative is, which I quite enjoy. Yeah, no, it's it's really maybe I don't want to like over McGillicristize this um, this like more emotional piece, but there is something to be said of viewing things from certain takes and multiple different perspectives instead of just saying here's the history of it instead reading here's all these different accounts and different full perspectives because even when you read it there are a few contradictions like um there was one there was somebody who remembered sitting with bush while he watched the towers collapse live on television on air force one and another person who was on the base who remembered being with him the first time he saw it after they had landed um contradictions like that but I don't think those really bothered me so much as they all conveyed, regardless of when he watched it, they all conveyed a sense of truth, which was very good. Very good. Uh, so from that, we will move directly. One, one other comment. Sorry. I did have one other comment to make on this on this one, which I was reading it today. Is uh, It did make me think about last year, and this is getting Stephen a bit of... Uh, uh, not not going to drag you through the mud. If I was kind of in your same place, being like, COVID is not that big of a deal... But and you've heard it like parody that COVID is like our generation's 9-11 or whatever. And I'm not sure how true that will be. But I remember when it was kind of all going down, thinking like, is this how it felt on 9-11? And my my parents were like, yeah, this feels very, very similar. I'm sure you guys heard similar things. Like this is what 9-11 kind of felt like, but in slow motion as news starts to come out. And reading this piece gave me a lot more sympathy and empathy for um, leaders at that time when, when like COVID was happening of like, okay, well, but how much information can you really gain? The big theme in this piece is they have so little information and they're operating with, I mean, basically in the dark and they're circling in Air Force One over Kansas, just have no idea where to go because they can't get enough information and know where it's safe. And that, that really resonated with me for what a lot of us have felt like, what some of us still do feel like even a year and a half later. As just nobody knows exactly what to do. Um, I'm not sure if that's way too political for this podcast, but that um, that's the point that resonated with me. No, that's fine. I can mention. I think that's good. I can mention very quickly that at some point we're going to have to do a like a like a live listening to of Stephen's original comments on COVID because I again wasn't at that episode where he made them and see what he said and see if there's any way we can redeem him in the present. Because if it is as he's described it to me somewhat recently, I think he actually may have been factually incorrect, but spiritually and philosophically on the right track. We shall see. I would appreciate the chance for a little redemption, not going to lie. Alternatively, (laughs) we could just mock you and pillory you for another Okay, well, that's probably what's going to happen. Like, I might have the shot at redemption. You might even, like grant me like yeah no you actually had some good points but you said covid wasn't a big deal in 20 in 2023 when fauci finally says this is over then we can listen and and why aren't you the optimist (laughs) uh steven did you have anything here oh just yeah uh one one little comment a comment that the epilogue was actually quite touching um I mean, it's short enough. I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it out loud. This is Mike Morell speaking in 2011. Uh, the very first phone call that, or sorry, he was saying this in regards to 2011. So in 2011, the very first telephone call that President Barack Obama made after we were sure we'd kill Osama bin Laden was to President George Bush. Barack, President Obama knew that I'd been with him on 9-11, and so he asked me to fly down to Dallas after the raid to brief President Bush personally. I went down about two weeks later and walked and walked President Bush through every aspect of the raid. I thought I could see in his face some sense of closure. Which, I mean, for all the political enmity between Bush and Obama, I really did kind of admire Obama's saying like, nope, this was 
this was something that that defined your presidency and it changed the face of this country. And I want you to be the one to to know that we we've we've done the thing that you set out to do. So I thought that was actually quite, um, quite tasteful. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that kind of story just makes you want to say uh, thanks, Obama. Thanks, Obama. Well, that's an older it's an older meme, but it checks out. Now, that phrase was normally said with some vindictiveness and rage, though not in this case. But normally, when one is angry and vindictive, uh, one tends to rant. Uh, Stephen, have you a rant? Yeah, I have a short one. It's uh, I am very mixed on this rant. Very mixed indeed. So one of my favorite uh, bands growing up that I kind of grew to appreciate more and more, a band called Amberlin. And if you listen to them, indeed, they are exactly what you think teenage and early 20s and indeed mid-20s and late 20s Stephen would listen to. Uh, kind of some of their lyrics a little over the top, some you know, kind of the angsty chords and whatnot. But at the same time, I, in my opinion, some of the, like there are some lyrics that are just absolutely beautiful. And uh, some, of the, some of their their music is just very well done. And just on the whole, one of those few Christian bands that I can actually unironically get behind, or at least semi-ironically. No, unironically, I can get behind and say like, nope, that's a good band. I enjoy them. And they dissolved uh, a few years ago, I think back in 2014, I want to say so, quite some time ago. And they actually had a reunion tour a couple of years ago and they went through Seattle and I found out about this two weeks after they left. And this upset me greatly. And I thought, nope, that's it. I'm never having a chance. But miracle of miracles, they did another reunion tour and they were in Detroit and I was super excited. I was originally planning on going alone, but it's not fun to go to, uh, to a concert alone. And so my friend who is moving in uh, from Uganda or from Uganda to St. Andrews back to Michigan, he just got back. I was like, hey, Ryan Kyle, let's go. Let's go to a concert. I don't know if you like Anverlin. He had heard of them like once or twice. I knew he was just going to amuse me, but he he agreed and we off we went. So very excited. I had uh, a vaccine, a proof of vac vaccination in my wallet that I've actually considered throwing away a few times because I've never needed to use it, but I've just kind of always had just in case anyone gives me a hard time. So we get to the, the security guards and the thing they ask is, do you have proof of a negative COVID test within the last 72 hours or do you have proof of vaccination? I do. Ryan Kyle has no such thing. And they just say straight oh, up, no. you can't come in. And like, to his credit, the security guard was one of the most gracious people I've met. Like he, it was very clear he was not getting a kick out of this. He actually gave us his email and was like, see if you can get refunds for the tickets. If not, email me. I see, I'll see what I can do. I feel terrible about the, terrible about this oh, guys. And I was lamenting no. the entire time. Like this is a reunion tour. I'm never going to be able to see them again. And, uh, but like, it was, it was something something straight out of like Kafka and that like his hands were tied. He couldn't do anything. Like he would lose his job if he let us through and someone found out. Um, but it, and the, the frustrating thing is Ryan Kyle was vaccinated. And so like he should have been able to go, but he just didn't have proof. Um, and so it was just on the whole a sucky thing, random, just random businesses that have differing standards and the, the whole pen, you know, something, something pandemic suck. Um, but the happy part of this, this rant is Ryan Kyle is a good and decent friend and actually took one for the team and said, I'll go out for I'll go out for a drink in the bar. I know this band means a lot to you. Go enjoy the concert. Um, so I did, I actually originally agreed to meet with him at nine 30. The, uh, they, Amberlin only got started at nine though. And so I left the venue. They told me explicitly, you can't come back in no matter what you can't come back in if you leave. And I was like, Nope, I agreed to meet at nine 30. Ryan Collins insisted I go back, talk with the security guard that had befriended us and see if I could get back in. And indeed the security guard was a bro and let me back in to finish up the night. It was a great concert. Um, so 
on the whole, security okay. guard, you're quite the bro, and Ryan Kyle, you're quite the friend. So, the, okay, that's good. Uh, was- Ticketmaster, you're or not? I'm not sure if it's Ticketmaster or whatever. Whatever venue has this rule, you're a tool. But those two, uh, high praise. Well, Ticketmaster is a tool. That's, okay, that's well, yeah, that is that is true. But but uh, no, I'm I, I back in my youth college i used to be a quite a prolific concert goer before the before covid hit and i can say first of all i was getting so much depression on your behalf as you were telling the story and secondly befriending security guards is is quite fun we me and my friend knew several security guards in seattle by like after oh, a few years and it was it was pretty fun because yeah nice it would give us i can't imagine that, them great. not being a cool sort just uh, like they get to hang out at oh, concerts so all day long that sounds great <laughs> Yeah. Also, Stephen, uh, the way things are going, I'll, I'll probably cut this out. Uh, I mean, throw it out if you want, but definitely make sure you have photos of that vaccination card because, like, yes. for example, King County just mandated it for like all indoor everything. That's in Washington. Oh, so, like, yeah, yeah. just saying, don't throw that away. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, sorry. I carry a copy of it with me in my wallet. And oh, so I was going to throw out the copy. I, you know, I had the I original. Yeah, I wouldn't right, throw away all that. Right, I had all that right, all right. Um, but no, that's a good point. I'll, that'd be a lot easier than carrying around my wallet. I'll stick yeah, I just it. have it on my Google Drive so I can Smart. always whip it out if I need to. Sam, what do you got? Oh, yeah. So this is, in signature fashion, it's not really a rant. It's more like something I've been reflecting on. So we, the, the three of us spent last weekend um, at the Dominican House of Studies in D.C., uh, hanging out with the friars for a little bit. Um, and it was a good time. It was it was very nice, very nice to have some contemplative time in prayer and hear philosophers debate the minutia of Thomism like their life depends on it. Um, but there was one comment that I, I heard in a conversation that I've been just, just thinking about. I was talking to a woman who works at the House of Studies. She was she was like a, I don't, I don't remember what her position was. It was something, it was like a special programs and development coordinator or something like that. Um, but we, uh, me and a couple um, acquaintances were asking her uh, like what her job was like, how she liked it, how she liked working at the, the, the um, House of Studies. And she said that something along the lines of we, you know, it, it's great, but we feel a bit envious of the brothers sometimes. Like we put all this hard work into fundraising and putting on these programs and making sure the lights stay on and keeping the place running. But the core purpose is just so that they can do what we all wish that we could do 24 hours a day. And I don't know, I, I don't know what to think about that. I just, it was just an interesting comment that has been tossing around in my head. So take that I- as you will. I remember there. So I, I helped run tech when I was in middle school and high school for for worship band and stuff. And one of the the, the youth pastor that kind of taught me the ropes did say that that is one of the downsides of working tech is if everything's going well, nobody notices you. It's only when things are going poorly that people will notice you. And that's just kind of part of the job that you have to accept right off the bat is nobody's going to notice you until you screw up, and then everyone will. And so I, yeah. that strikes me as something very analogous to what uh, this this woman um, and her team was probably going through in that like things are going great nobody nobody notices nobody thinks things are going horribly it's all our fault yeah and that's, no and that's definitely and i've also worked tech at church that's a really that's a really good take is because like I, i've worked tech at church both evangelical church and in at anglican church as i i haven't gotten on the rotation at um in new york but in seattle i was doing it i do like once a month and it is definitely not enjoyable i mean you're way far up away from everything and you're watching the levels and listening for any kind of feedback and you'll have to like, you know, just turn the mic on, turn it off, 
It's very, very boring, but important. And that was kind of the perspective I had to take. So that's a good, I like, I like that take of like, yeah, you're not going to be seen, but it's still important. For my rant, um, here in Washington, D.C., it cooled down a little bit today. We had a nice little rainstorm. And that made me think of, you know, a, a, a deep truth that I want to manifest into existence, which is that uh, Summer is dead and we have killed him. I have gathered the pumpkin pancake mix, the harvest tea and the pumpkin rooibos. I have lit the apple spice and vanilla pumpkin candles and spoken the sacred words, are the leaves changing? I have taken the vest from the closet, ripped plastic sheeting from the peacoat, and donned my boots. All that remains is for the goddamn weather to comply and get below 60 degrees already. It's September 16th, and it is high time for scars. So let all nature know and obey. Summer is dead, and we have killed him. Beautiful. That's an awesome rant. Thank you. <laughs> that was probably one of the best ones we've ever had. Yeah, that was good. Much appreciated. Well, if no one has anything else i do believe we will close out this episode uh just a bit over time whiskey's gone this is you know whiskey's gone and manhattan is manhattan so there is nothing more to drink there is nothing more to say uh so for everyone here at the problem with reading podcast i'm brevin i'm steven i'm sam and we will see you next time ideas of consequences Hey, Steven and, and, and Sam, do you guys remember those old Geico commercials that's like, you know, can Geico really save you 15% or more on car insurance? And then they say, like, a true fact. Do you, do you remember yes. those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so I thought of a new one, uh, which is, <clears throat> could switching to Geico save you 15% or more on car insurance? If you've got a gal in Constantinople, will she be waiting in Istanbul? Boo. Ha 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 ha.